Okay, so uh, welcome, folks. Gary, this is the start of season 10 of Mention and Dispatches. They, they haven't pulled the plug on us yet. I know, it's amazing. Kind of crazy. So welcome, audience, to season 10 of Mention and Dispatches. And and so Gary's here. Gary is, is not Hi. here just because of the Charles S. Roberts Awards stuff that he's stuck with. We're actually not going to talk a lot of awards stuff tonight. We're going to bring you back another time to gripe about the awards. God, I hope not. Yeah, well, of course. Like, we're, we're grogs. That's what we do, right? We grumble. So so Gary is here representing Ardwolf's Lair. And also Gary is here because as many Ardwolf's Lair fans know, Gary's also a longtime role-playing guy, much like me. Uh, we, we've been around that for quite a while. And that brings us to our third member of tonight's uh, tonight's podcast. Uh, first time person for us here on Mention and Dispatches, but a long time war gamer and more importantly, role playing publisher as well. Uh, Mr. Chris Premus is here from Green Ronin. Welcome, Mr. Chris, sir. How are you? Hello, I'm doing well. Happy to be here. We love having you. Look, this is your first time for our audience. I clearly not your first time on a podcast. Well, I listen to them. Brant, Brant's mom and my mom enjoy listening on a weekly basis. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, Fred's dog loves listening to our podcast. When he's on his walks. He posts something from every one of those walks listening to our podcast. But yeah, so so Chris is Chris, what what's your actual title over at Green Ronin? Is it owner? Is it publisher? Um, I'm founder and president um and co-owner uh with right. Nicole Linders and Hal Mangold were the we're the three owners. Gotcha. And again, knowing that our primary audience is a wargaming audience, not necessarily a role-playing audience. Green Ronin's a role-playing company. And and I know you guys have the age engine is one of your main things, but you also do some some uh OGL compatible material as well. What's kind of the the split? What are the highlights there for Green Ronin? Um, well, so we got our start using the OGL. Um, I started Green Ronin when I was working at Wizards of the Coast. Um, and so like I was there during the development of third edition D&D and also during the discussion and internal debate about the open game license itself. Um, so I had moved over from role-playing R&D um, into the new miniatures division where I thought we were going to have the freedom to design miniatures games there, but it was <laughs> wizards and everything was political. So that ended up being a debacle. But anyway, uh, after I was doing the mini stuff for a while, I thought, well, you know, I kind of miss doing RPG stuff. I'll just start a side company to kind of, you know, keep my finger in the pie as it were. Um, and uh the first thing we published in 2000 was Orc, the role-playing game, which is a beer and pretzels role-playing game um, where you're all <laughs> you're all um, psychotic orcs. So it's a good time. Um, that like that came already. out at what's that? I like it already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was that the John Wick game? No, no, no. Uh, okay. Same era, but different game. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, I designed that with Todd Miller. Um, Todd was part of my game group back in Massachusetts, and he had run this uh, this D and D campaign. Technically, except he barely used the rules. Um, so, <laughs> um, so we turned his. Uh, we ended up calling the world of Orkness uh, into a setting, and it's you know it's a lot of comedy and and uh, lightheartedness. Anyway, that came out in Origins 2000. And then a month later, we released Death in Freeport, which was the first thing we did that used the open game license and the D20 logo, because those were separate things. We were one of the first companies to get anything out with that. We, um, we were there first day of Gen Con 2000 with Death in Freeport. Uh, it was us and Atlas Games who had, you know, D20 modules for sale to go with the new player's handbook. 
Um, and that went great. So then we spent a lot of years publishing D20 material um, and then some stuff that used only the open game license. And one of those games was Mutants and Masterminds, which is still going um, 22 years later. So uh, maybe 21. Anyway, <laughs> a long time. Um, <laughs> <to> drink. <laughs> yeah. So that, so Mutants and Masterminds is our only remaining game, like of our major lines that still uses the OGL. Um, and we have had a, a long time publishing program for that called uh, Super Powered by M&M, which lets, lets other companies uh, publish compatible material also using the OGL and with uh, certain strictures from us to use the logo. So when when the recent <laughs> stuff happened, you know, Mutants and Masterminds was my primary concern for us. Um, yeah. Our other major lines all use the Adventure Game Engine at this point, which is not an OGL game. We just own it. And so I didn't have any worries about that part of the business. For the Wargamers who are going, what the hell is this OGL thing? So it's it's the open gaming license, and it's something that came out of some of the Wizards of the Coast uh, reboot of, not that it was necessarily an, immediately a, a, an inseparable part of it, but it happened at the same time as the launch of 3rd Edition D&D back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when Wizards had bought out TSR and was coming out with their own stuff. And so for, for our audience who's not necessarily going to know what the open gaming license is... What does the OGL do and not do, not necessarily within the political context of a lot of the recent blowups about is it revocable, is it not revocable, but, but in terms of, of the practical substance of what it does for you as a publisher to have an open game license uh, product, what does that do and not do for you? Uh, well, you know, TSR and after them Wizards, you know, had a long history of having to deal with people who just went ahead and publish D&D stuff, you know, without a license. And some people were like, I don't need a license. I'm just going to do it. And, you know, there were a bunch of things that came out that were unlicensed, but had the, the D&D name on it. And the internet only compounded that because people were putting lots of stuff up on websites and blogs and, and all that. So part of the reason for the open game license was to give people a legal path to publish compatible material with D&D where they wouldn't have to worry about Watsi suing them <laughs> or TSR. Well, I guess Watsi by that point. And, uh, and then Wizards wouldn't have to worry uh, about dealing with all that stuff. So um, uh, what it did was basically take the core of the third edition D&D rules and they released them into something called the system reference document. And that was basically like the, the core of it. it. It didn't include character creation and some other things, some proprietary monsters and things like that. Um, but basically it, it allowed you to come up with new stuff, adventures, monsters, spells, you know, what have you. Um, and when it started, there was a, a companion license to it called the D20 System Trademark License. And if you if you complied with some additional strictures, um, you could get this D20 logo and put it on your book. And that was a compatibility logo. So you could publish a DD compatible thing with just the open game license. But if you want an easy way for people to notice it, like in a store and understand that that's what it was, you wanted the D20 logo on it. So that's how it started. And, uh, you know, there was this 
this whole big explosion of D20 stuff starting in uh, 2001, really. There were a few of us in 2000 and then 2001. All, you know, new companies were forming, old companies were like, hey, there's money to be made. <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, so there were then five years of, uh, of just an enormous amount of uh, D20 material. But eventually, um, when fourth edition came around, uh, that was kind of a precursor to what's happened recently in that Wizards wanted to uh, not put 4th edition out as its own system reference document. They didn't want people using the OGL. They wanted to do a new license, which they floated called the Game System License, that basically didn't make anybody happy. But as part of that, they took away the uh, the D20 system trademark license, so you could no longer put that logo on things. So then it was up to you to brand them in some way that indicated compatibility. So like for us... We created a, a logo and brand called Third Era, and we just, you know, all the books that we still sold, we swapped in the Third Era logo, um, and other people did similar things. Yeah, so people, I mean, it's weird. This was a major thing for a long time, but people in the most recent discussions kind of forget that the D20 license was a separate thing that worked with the OGL, um, but it was, <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Now, I remember right around the time that third edition D&D and all of those OGL products were, were really exploding was right around the time that I had left role playing to go back into wargaming as, as more of my primary hobby. And just in time for all of the new role playing product explosion to kind of take over the hobby stores. And mm -hmm. uh, it, it wasn't bad enough that wargames got crowded out by all the collectible card games. Now they're getting crowded out by all the D20 compatible role playing stuff. So that's that that was that that was what I I really remember of all of that. And then when I first started coming to Origins uh, in the, the mid 2000s, I remember there being tons of D20 compatible stuff on the bargain shelves. Titan Games in particular, every day they had a special buy one, get three free or something ridiculous. And oh yeah, there were a bunch of them that I bought just because they were great source books, even if I wasn't going to use the, the rules in them. Um, they were just fun books to read as, as a for instance. You so, still find some of that stuff in uh, in booths like that at Gen Con. You know, yeah. like still hawking stock from 15 <laughs> years ago in, you yeah. know, often as buy one, get three free or that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Gary, thoughts on uh, on on the history lesson there up to this point before we start diving into current events? So I guess we'll pick up current events with fifth edition then. But but <laughs> one of the things that so we, we saw a couple of different approaches to the to the ability of other publishers than Wizards of the Coast to to produce material using that system. Okay, we had, on the one hand, a, a large number of publishers published ma support materials that were basically plug-in things for D&D. Adventures, monster books, new classes, that kind of stuff, right? Um, we also had, somewhat later, took a few years for this to gain steam, um, a movement called the uh, Old School Renaissance or Old School Revival or whatever they're calling themselves nowadays, which is still around. Which, as part of what they did, uh, rebuilt uh, kind of simulacra of old editions of D&D using that SRD system reference document. Okay, So the OGL gives you access to this subset of D&D of rules that is contained in the, the SRD. Okay, So they're two separate but related things. So we saw the, the what we call now retro clones, and there's you know, different degrees of what, 
retro cloneness, if if you want. <laughs> uh, and and then we also began to see other publishers releasing their own unrelated systems under Wizards of the Coast's OGL, which is an interesting choice and seems like an ill-advised one now. In you know, in view of current events, um, one example of this was Mongoose Publishing, which had licensed RuneQuest for a while and released a a, a RuneQuest SRD, but they used Wizards of the Coast Open Game License. They did the same thing with Traveler. They created a Traveler SRD for their first edition of Mongoose Traveler, and they but they still used the the OGL. Um, and then other publishers picked up on that on a, obviously much smaller scale than with D&D, right? There's a thriving ecosystem of third-party traveler publishers nowadays, which has always been the case for Traveler. Uh, but a lot of them now, uh, in, in that same way that uh, that intrepid <laughs> individuals, well, right, intrepid individuals kind of recreate recreated or rebuilt D&D in whatever edition was their favorite um, from the OGL uh, because then Mongoose released the Traveler rules under the OGL um, a, a something very similar to classic traveler was recreated called the cepheus engine and there's a whole ecosystem of independent publishers that are now supporting cepheus engine other than the people that do cepheus engine uh, and all of that is built on the back of not an ogl right it's not like this is some generic document it is the specific page of text that is itself copyrighted by wizards of the coast um so and, and those are two of the things that we saw toward the end of the three third edition 3.5 era and into the fourth edition era and there's other examples as well uh, of of other just other game systems that got released under the ogl um and there are other publishers that said hey this is a great idea but maybe trusting wizards to never try and screw anybody over is a not great move so we're yep. gonna create our own similar thing Chaosium did that they had their own um their own plan which is somewhat less open than the ogl but um you know it's it's the same idea but they didn't just use wizards ogl right yep. so you're kind of when when you say that you're publishing this open game license material you're kind of adding to that pool of material that other ogl publishers and designers and whatnot can draw on right so we've now got this this huge pool other than the D the original Wizards of the Coast SRD, um, they also added what we'll get to fifth edition, but there's there are other entire game systems that have been added to that pool of stuff. And the key to unlocking it all as a publisher is that open game license from Wizards that's owned by Wizards of the Coast. So, Gary, hang on just real quick. Chris, I, I, I want to call back to something you mentioned earlier and just confirm. I, I think I heard correctly. So, the the your guys adventure game engine that is proprietary to your company and that is not something that's that's an open game license thing that other people can use correct um it's not an open game license thing we do have a um community content program over on drive through rpg where uh you can release stuff for fantasy age and modern age and we're soon adding blue rose and cthulhu awakens to that as well okay um, that's like the dms guild it's, it's kind of a different way to handle things yeah so yeah, there's yeah. Has a similar uh community content program for both call of cthulhu and RuneQuest. And yeah they do. Mong- mongoose sure ought to but they don't yeah but that's that's content for your guys existing systems that's not sort of hacking the system into something similar but not quite the same uh as its own standalone game that's that's just content for the existing game right yeah i mean our our major restriction is that what we're what we're most interested in seeing is setting material and adventures 
um, yeah. because yeah. you know you just always need more adventures <laughs> for <laughs> game masters, um, yeah. and there's only so much we can do. So um, the, we had a stricture when we launched it that said basically you could add new rules material like monsters or um, talents or things like that, but you couldn't have more than like 15% of your word count as that. Um, but we're upping that when we release um, the Blue Rose and uh, Cthulhu Awakens material. We're upping that to 50%. So just wow. don't call it 1.2. Don't, don't, don't <laughs> yeah. All right. So no yeah. But before we dive too much, before we, we you know, veer back onto course into the wargaming world, and that, you know, I, I'm hoping that all of us were, that, that all of our wargaming audience is still with us at this point, you know, almost 20 minutes in and, and talking about a bunch of role playing OGL stuff. If I promise it's all relevant, we're going to come back to the wargaming piece. But and exciting Chris, legal stuff. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> it's, you know, look, we're going to get on topic here at some point. I promise. Yep. We're, we're Let me just have a out. disclaimer here. None of us are lawyers. This is not legal advice. So go consult yeah. an IP attorney. If this is Correct. a business decision you're contemplating. Even if I was a lawyer, I'm not sure I would count on me for legal advice. Even the uh, lawyers are um, saying, I am not your lawyer. Go, go yeah, talk to your kidding. lawyer. Yeah. Um, so, Chris, you guys just recently had a crowdfunding launch and it's it's on. I know everybody wants to use Kickstarter as like, you know, the generic term like Kleenex or something, but it's mm-hmm. it's over on Backer Kit and it's the the actual title. It's the fifth season. Correct. Like that is yes. the formal. That is based on the N.K. Jemison books, correct? Correct. The Broken Earth trilogy of well, which that's a hell of an idea is, to pick up. Is the first one. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're using crowdfunding by Backerkit. Um, basically, if uh, if you've um, really been supporting Kickstarters at all, you'd know Backerkit because uh, you know most yeah. game companies use it as a backend uh, for actually fulfilling and you know collecting shipping and all that stuff. So we felt it would be it should be easy to make people comfortable trying an alternate site when it was you know people that they already knew a service that they already used. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so when I last checked this morning, you guys were at about 200% of what your original goal was. And uh, as we are recording this, you've still got about three weeks to go. So, yes. so it, it appears to be So successful. it's doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's do- yes, it's doing okay. Um, but uh, yeah, we're at um, about $123,000 now, which is great. Um, but, uh, you know, like millions of people have read those books. So I feel like we can do better. <laughs> um, yeah. One of the things about that Broken Earth trilogy is, is like each book of it won a, a Hugo award for best novel. Um, and and it was consecutive. Yeah. Yeah. Unprecedented. Um, and the setting is just super interesting. Um, NK Jemison is a, you know, she's really one of the, the foremost minds in speculative fiction, I think. So the opportunity to offer up uh, the setting called the stillness as a role-playing venue or venue. <laughs> <laughs> role-playing setting uh yeah it was something that we definitely thought was a good idea i i'm assuming that there are already plans on the on the whiteboard at the office uh, such that it is in this you know post-pandemic nobody goes to an office anymore kind of era that uh that there's already some follow-up products within this this game universe already lined up and, and waiting to go after the first round gets done right yeah we do plan this to be a line also um uh, your listeners may like to note that we did a uh, a quick start um, that we dropped the day the uh, the campaign launched, 
and that's a 45-page PDF that has uh, basic rules to play, pre-generated characters, and a complete adventure. So if you're like, what's this game about? Download the PDF and read it, and then you know. <laughs> so, I have already flipped through the PDF. I've not played yeah. it. It's just me. But I've already flipped through the PDF, and it's uh, it, it is definitely... So with... with the limited background in graphic design that I have, I only taught it at the college level for a while. I, I will say it's it's a pretty impressive looking quick start. You know, a lot of quick starts, it's sort of barely more than the typewriter notes from people. Yeah. <laughs> That that now, that PDF quick start you guys offered up is is a good looking document there. It it really does impress when you're flipping through it visually. It's it's pretty cool. Well, Pal Mangold, who I mentioned earlier, um, you know, he's a co-owner, but also our our production guy, and he has mad graphic design skills. So yeah, um, yeah, he makes our books look nice, and he's yeah, also very impressive. So yeah, yeah, couldn't uh, couldn't do it without Hal. I, I promised the audience we were going to steer this back into the wargaming world at some point. And, and so we're going to make an attempt to here. And, <laughs> and here's where this comes from. So, it, it, Gary, I don't know that you and I had discussed this too much, but when we had our last Dragoons admin team meeting, so, uh, so me, uh, Mike Colello from My Own Worst Enemy, uh, you know, Bob, who helps run our forums, was there. Um, we had, you know, some of the folks from the professional wargaming world were in there. We were having a conversation around the OGL stuff and, and sort of the comment came up about, was there ever anything equivalent to this in the wargaming world? And, and really the only thing we come up with was not any formal kind of license structure necessarily, but there are a whole lot of people that make third party um, products to support advanced squad leader. A lot of the Indeed historical modules. Yeah. But you, you've got, you've got maps, you've got scenarios. In some cases you have counters, you don't have rules. You still got to go buy the giant binder of ASL um, in order to play all of these things some very good looking products that are in that ASL ecosphere, but are not officially licensed products. They can't use an ASL logo on there at all. Um, it's just sort of compatible with the leading tactical war game out there. Yep. Kind of, you know, most, I'm, I'm not sure even many of them even say that everybody yeah. just knows. Everybody yeah. just knows. Yeah, pretty much. And, and, and when you walk into gamers armory again, you know, like my local game store, but kind of the ASL store in, in the country with, with all the mail order stuff they do as well. Like there is the wall of ASL where all of these things are found uh, in there. And so ASL was one of the ones that came to mind. The other one that came to mind was the commands and colors system mm -hmm. because GMT publishes commands and colors, ancients and commands and colors, medieval and commands and colors, Napoleonics. But you also had battle cry memoir 44 from days of wonder. You had the battle lore line from Fantasy Flight for a while. You, you had a whole bunch of different companies publishing. A, it, it, even now, Commands and Colors, Jacobite. Uh, it, is it Jacobite Rising? Tricorn. And then Jacobite Tricorn is a standalone Jacobite, yeah, yeah, the, for that. From the, the ones from, uh, from Compass Games. So the Commands and Colors engine has been published by a variety of different publishers, all essentially out of the same design brain, obviously. But right. And that's the, the difference in this case. It's they're literally all of those products from half a dozen different publishers are all coming from the the spacious mind of richard borg yes yeah. so, i mean he made licensing deals with all those companies mm -hmm. um and uh and you know i think has done design work on most of those not mm -hmm. not battle war maybe but uh, so, so obviously mmp can't create some sort of open license for asl because it itself is licensed ah. yeah <laughs> so so that's it's, what makes this an interesting like situation have a sub license 
but but the idea is that there are products in the wargaming world that are sort of third, not necessarily third party, but I mean, in the case of the ASL ones, they are literally third party. But but in the case of the Commands and Colors ones, we've seen a common engine from multiple publishers across a wide variety of of eras, but with the same underlying game mechanic. And so if someone were to, to, to look at some kind of wargaming engine with some sort of open license that here's the underlying basic rules of this, here's the license under which I'm going to let you make these things, is this something that would have some space in the wargaming world? And, and Gary, I'll let you talk some about the market space in the wargaming world, but I'm, I'm really interested in hearing Chris's perspective after that about kind of the business end of this, because that's the part he knows way better than you and I do. So from a gameplay perspective, from an audience perspective, from, you know, what do you think, Gary? Is this something that people might be interested in? The the situation you're talking about with Advanced Squad Leader is actually a situation that has existed for a long time. Clear back to the days when Avalon Hill was Avalon Hill and not an appendage of Hasbro. Okay. So the current publisher of Advanced Squad Leader is probably everybody listening to the show knows is Multiman Publishing, which itself started as a publisher of third-party ASL material. Okay, and Avalon Hill just kind of looked the other way as long as nobody misbehaved too badly. Um, yeah. Multiman has continued that practice, but as you pointed out, Multiman does not own Advanced Squad Leader. Multiman Publishing licenses it from our old friends at Hasbro, who now return <laughs> to the story. So. So, so that in itself is an interesting situation, but it's it's probably not up to multi-man publishing to protect the IP, uh, at least as completely as they might be obligated to were they the actual owner, okay? Yeah. So that, yeah. that situation still exists. There's a host of smaller publishers, some of which are producing very professional quality stuff, uh, but the understanding is that it's all ASL compatible, and some of it says, you know, leading tactical squad level system or whatever, but most of mostly people just know what it is. If it's from Critical Hit or Bounding Fire or Lafranc Terror or somebody like that. Um, I think that that the Richard Borg's analogy is not particularly relevant here because you've got a, a single mastermind with that system who owns that system who is kind of pulling the puppet master strings behind the scenes of all the various companies to get them to publish new and additional commands and colors games about different things, right? Well, it's so not where... an open situation in the same way as even the de facto open situation that we have with ASL or that we used to have back in the yeah. day with D&D before the OGL. So so you're you're right that the the commands and color stuff is all ultimately from 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 the Borg, right? I, I love that, you know, it, it assimilates everything anyway. But the, where Commands and Colors was the relevant comparison is that you've got a, a single underlying engine that handles literally from, you know, sticks and stones all the way through spaceships. And which it, runs completely independent of considerations of scale. Yes. And it it's something that has existed across a wide variety of publishers, mm-hmm. some niche, some mass. I mean, you, you can find Memoir 44 in toy stores. Never Mind. Not right now. <laughs> well, but 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 the point being that it's something that is that that game engine has has not been kept in a single box with a single publisher in some way, shape, or form. So, from so, a mechanical foundation, I think I see where you're coming from now with this commands and colors. Not um, <laughs> the, from a mechanical foundation standpoint, that's not a bad idea actually, because we've seen how robust that core system can be. Okay? Yeah. Um, I think when you say OGL for wargaming, what I'm thinking more like is let's go. Find 
find those games from the late 60s through, say, the late 70s that were produced by something, we're talking mechanical foundations now, that were produced by Avalon Hill or SPI, or in many cases produced by SPI and then sold to Avalon Hill or stolen by TSR. <laughs> um, there's, there's definitely a common sort of lingua franca underlying a lot of those games. I mean, right, we make fun of Avalon Hill for using the same CRT in a, a dozen different games, right? Yeah. Um, so there's there's a lot of like maybe shared stuff um, that uh, could be uh, like assembled into something like a core war game rules. Okay. Yeah. And we even have precedent for things being published that way too. In in a situation that's maybe not quite as broad as your commands and colors example, but situations where you have say a series rule book, and then you have a game specific rule book that goes and covers the individual variants for that particular game in the series, right? Dnessing and the gamers pioneered this particular way to present that kind of idea. I think it's an interesting idea, and I'm real curious to see what Chris has to say if he thinks that there's anything viable in the idea, because ultimately it's going to be about the, what the topics are going to be, right? If all you're concerned about is covering World War II, then yeah, you could probably come up with a, this is the World War II standard wargaming kit that you can design games from. Great. Um, and a lot of war games that come out now, even today, are going to borrow from that toolkit anyway, because it's the lingua franca of wargaming. But then when you start to get into, okay, now we're doing dealing with Civil War or Vietnam or Napoleonics or Ancients or something like that, maybe that foundation does not represent as secure a foothold as we might want. Um, so the big advantage for the small publisher with things like the open game license as it pertained to uh, D&D is you get to tap into a much larger audience than you would get if you just published your own game system. You know, that's why you start to see like million dollar Kickstarters for fifth edition D&D books by companies that weren't wizards. Um, <laughs> companies that didn't exist the previous week. Yeah, in some cases. <laughs> um, like that's one of the big motivators i mean design wise you know like the specific expression of rules is uh is under copyright but not the underlying game mechanics so anyone who felt like you know rewriting the to brook system uh with just you know just start from scratch and, and rewrite it with your own words like you could publish that if you wanted to somebody uh, shoot me in the face <laughs> you are aware chris that somebody did that right now just a critical hit has done that for 25 I years i think they actually got uh they actually uh bought the system off bought yeah i think so off the design. Yeah. They, yeah. they made they made it official they made an honest woman of tobrook <laughs> yeah um so i mean that's the world has yet to recover <laughs> <laughs> it, it is possible that a company could actually help itself um by coming up with some you know, core mechanics that they release under a brand name and then just allow other people to iterate on. Um, and yeah, you know, what you're trying to build there is what's called the network effect, you know, where there's uh, more things uh, available for people who like those rules. Uh, and in the end, you know, it helps everybody theoretically. Um, you know, it would be, uh, you know, it would be easier if, say, uh, Games Workshop took uh, Warhammer Fantasy Battle and released, you know, the equivalent of an SRD for that, you know, because so many people have played that, um, that the mechanics will feel familiar to them. And if there was something like the OGL, I'm sure a lot of people would use that. But, uh, I, you know, I think Games Workshop, you can't pry that under their cold dead hands. So uh. Literally cold dead hands. 
as as our boy Cyrano is very fond of pointing out, Games Workshop is not a game company. They are a toy catalog company that happens to have a game engine associated with it. So a little bit harsh, but uh, <laughs> but not wrong. <laughs> I mean, they kind of have a whole design studio of game designers, but uh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but, but, our, but, but the, yeah, the primary business is selling the miniatures. Yeah, they gotta, they gotta sell more toys. Oh. Circling back around to the idea of sort of the one game engine to rule them all, it's it's not necessarily it, look clearly there is lots of room for innovation regardless of a common engine or not. There's you know how many new role playing systems published every year despite the existence of the OGL and that D and D system reference document, and despite D and D largely being kind of the the underlying least common denominator that most role players share because um, it's it's the largest and easiest thing to find, right? It's like every Everybody knows how to use Microsoft Word, even though they've got a personal preference of, of some other word processor. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody knows how to play D&D because everybody learned at some point, because that's the one thing you can find that all the role players have in common. But, you know, Gary, where, where I was going kind of with the commands and colors thing, like you mentioned, you know, it's it's something that has covered a wide variety of conflicts and scales and such. Um, similarly, GMT's coin system we've seen used in how many different kinds of settings, you know, there, there's between... Uh, Pendragon and the uh, and Falling Sky all the way up through Vietnam and now GMT's got Red Dust Rebellion, which is the the sci-fi Mars game that's been in development for about five years now. That that I think is is it finally on P five hundred or is it about to go on P? Oh, it's been it's been on P five hundred. It's okay, still so in it, art. It, they it, got a million pieces of art for that. Yeah, but even the guys, you know, the the doctors wits over at you know Strange Machine Games with Robotech Reconstruction. It's something that we've been following for for quite a while and have, have featured in some of our events, you know, that that leans heavily on some of those asymmetric coin mechanics for, you know, a, a well-known media license that we've seen the coin games cross a lot of different, a lot of different fields that, that you could almost make sort of a common reference, you know, that system reference document for coin, the, the coin system rules that you could plug and play with all sorts of different uh, genres and scales and time frames. Those those are the kinds of games that that I had in mind when I was thinking what would this shared rule set through an open license look like in the wargaming world? Because right now many of those are are captive in some way or another. Right, the coin system for better or worse is primarily associated with GMT. And and yeah, you've got Werewolf coming from Legion that that leans heavily on those mechanics. Troubles um, from Compass. Yeah. But but the vast majority of those coin games and and in fact the coin series volume fill in the blank right those <laughs> those are all GMT series games you yep. know from from Volco's original the the commands and colors engine you know again it's all board mm-hmm. the lock and load tactical engine that has been used for everything from World War II forward uh, lock and load publishing owns those things you know Mark designed that thing 25 years ago and and it it you know when Mark sold the company David took it over and and now that engine has been used for Moga for Afghanistan, for, you know, Gary's favorite fantasy war game of the Cold War Goes Hot. Uh, it's been used for a lot of World War II stuff. It's, you know, one of the few tactical Falklands games you will find. Um, so 
So I think there's conceptually, I don't know that war gamers have a hard time with this. The big question comes back to sort of the, the stuff Chris would know, which is, can you make any money on this? Like, is there any legitimate business reason for anybody in the wargaming world to say, hey, here's a set of rules. We're going to license them. Let everybody else build off of them. Go make something happen. Go make some magic, guys. I mean, it, it, Chris, does this thing have any kind of legs from a business sense? Um. Well, I mean, I think what you really need is is some established company to kick things off by opening up one of their core engines. And I don't know if there's anyone in the wargaming community who would do that, <laughs> but um, <laughs> they did uh, just as a way to encourage people's creativity, to keep them involved playing their game. Um, you know, I think it could work, um, but I also know convincing old wargamers to change their ways is often... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a hard path forward what, what are you trying to say chris <laughs> yeah um yeah. That, and that's probably the most polite way you could put it too so uh yeah <laughs> i have often put it in a less polite manner <laughs> well and you i'm know. one of those people yeah <laughs> yeah it, it, well i mean it, me too sanity is allowed on the podcast if you need it <laughs> yeah yeah i mean someone would need to see the value of uh because you know part of the, the things that it does is that you know people who might have drifted off to another game like people who get sick of D D and they were like eh, i want to try something different and that's how they found you know call of cthulhu or tunnels and trolls or you know what have you um having a lot of of other publishers doing supporting material you know, the odds increase that there's something in that diaspora of material that will keep someone interested in continuing to play D&D or, you know, whatever the game is. And so that could benefit the company that uh, that chose to take a, an, you know, a already somewhat popular game and, and open it up. Uh, but, you know, there's also no guarantees in life, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think, you know, one, one of the things that Ryan Dancy had pointed out when when he was first making like you were probably in the room when this happened, but but that he's you know, Ryan has talked about this openly over the years is that whenever role playing sales in general went up, D&D &D sales went up more than everybody else, because, again, that's the 800 pound gorilla in the room for somebody that doesn't know anything about role playing or a family member looking to buy a gift for somebody who's just getting into role playing and they don't know what they're looking for. The D&D &D stuff is the easiest thing to find. It's the one brand name they recognize. So that's what they're going to grab and, you know, put under the Christmas tree for their nephew or, you know, buy their friend in high school or whatever, because that's, that's a common starting point for a lot of people. And, and I don't know that any comparable product like that exists in the wargaming world. The what's other the gateway game, what's the gateway game into wargaming? Yeah. Risk. Twilight Struggle. Well, but okay. I don't think Twilight Struggle is particularly versatile mechanical tool set to like build serve as the foundation of anything else either. So well, there's the uh, Twilight Struggle I've... Red Sea game that they're coming out with. But but it's Twilight Struggle on a different I know. Path, right? <laughs> so. Yeah. Um well yeah, so I I was in fact in the room when that argument was made on many occasions. Um <laughs> there were yes, there were people within wizards who were deeply dubious about this whole thing um and then when it launched uh the the existing companies at that time uh you know anyone who'd been around for a while they were also deeply suspicious because it was wizards of the coast doing it <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> and it was often uh, perceived in those early days as 
an attempt by Wizards to essentially, you know, channel creativity into supporting their game um, instead of into making new games. Um, and basically, you know, people Screw would, everyone else. Yes, would argue that, you know, they just want everyone to play D&D. Things like As that. a clarification, just real quick, Chris, because again, you were there. The the whole, and, and this is this is open openly documented anyway, but just to confirm, the at the point in time in which Wizards was dealing with the, the D20 system and the open gaming license and opening D&D up for other publishers to create official material for it, Hasbro hadn't bought Wizards yet when that happened, had they? Um, I, don't I don't think so. Think so. I don't think no. they had yet. I think that happened a little further into the 2000s. So so when, when this was happening, it's people people could be deeply suspicious of wizards totally get it could understand that from from you know again this is the the behemoth in the industry and now we're trying to squash some of the little guys i if if you're one of the little guys it's very easy to see that but we're not yet to hasbro levels of of marketing competence <laughs> oh yeah marketing competence that was exactly the turn of phrase i was looking for brand market so incompetence Okay, okay. That's where I was going. You're putting the in in the wrong place. Market incompetence, two separate okay. words. <laughs> but well, I mean, uh, Wizards spent a lot of the 90s like trying to navigate being a small company that suddenly was making millions and millions of dollars. And so, you know, they, they tried bringing on all sorts of business consultants about how to run the companies and how to run brands and all that stuff. And a lot of that was just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It just didn't work. Didn't work. You know, the, the culture that they were trying to promote was not really a match for the people that worked there. Um, and uh, so I think they spent a lot of money <laughs> trying to essentially become more corporate. Um, and, you know, they did to a degree before the Hasbro buyout. Um but, you know, then, of course, <laughs> the buyout. So I've been in two different companies in my life that both had the struggle to go from being a big, small company to a small, big company. And I know that sounds a little weird, but if you've ever been through it, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, where, where people are struggling with, oh, crap, we're actually growing to the point where we have specialization inside the company. What do we do now? And, uh, yeah. and yeah. To, to mull their way through that. The latest piece in the the most recent salvo in the OGL wars has been that some of the the Wizards of the Coast system documents, and I, I, I'm not going to pretend to know exactly which ones, and we'll probably bore the audience if we get down to the nuts and bolts of it, but some of these things are being released through the Creative Commons license. The OGL is supposed to remain in place untouched, although people are already running away from it. Paizo is creating their new uh, their, their new license, the, the ORC license, and I think you guys have signed on in support of the ORC license, haven't you, Chris? Um, yeah, we, um, we got on board with that. Um, yeah. Let me just pause one second and uh, say that, uh, in fact, the Hasbro buyout had gone through. That happened in mm. September of 1999. And, oh, wow. Uh, okay. And OGL talk really didn't get going till early in 2000. So. Mm. Wow. Okay. I didn't realize Hasbro was on the scene that early. I, look, we're all sitting in front of computers. Any of us could well, I think that's the thought process. <laughs> without looking at a timeline, the thought process is probably Hasbro would never have agreed to anything like this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just I remember being in a meeting in like February or something of 2000, in which um, you know one of the points was that. Wizards, because it was such a big ship, you know, it was very difficult for it to change course 
quickly um, and be agile. And uh, and so it wasn't great at, at doing a lot of the, the short adventure support. And part of the hope was that these third-party companies would, would take up you know, publishing like 32 page adventures and that sort of thing, which Wizards had a hard time doing profitably anyway. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's was one of my impulses is because I was like, well, if I'm one guy, I'm pretty agile. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm pretty sure I, I could change have my a, mind on a I'm dime. somewhat less agile than I used to be. I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah. Hard same. But yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say you were in a room in February of whatever, and some guy with a tie showed up, and that's when he knew Hasbro was there. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I could go off on a lot of tangents, but. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we 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 don't want we don't want you to say anything you'd have to testify about in court later. So yeah, well, maybe I mean, don't, don't stretch it too much. <laughs> the one thing I will say is that a lot of people think it was Hasbro's orders that that began to cause the layoffs at Wizards, and it's actually not true. It was Wizards' own COO who decided to preemptively start laying people off to show how tough he was, and that he wasn't afraid to you know <laughs> cut people to oh, uh, increase the bottom line and that kind of stuff. So um, he escapes blame <laughs> for yeah. some of the things that happened. Man, yeah. I, so, some other time, either another podcast or, or sometime when we just have a minute to, to chat, I, I've got a couple of Hasbro theories I'd like to run past you and see see if they pass the smell test from somebody who saw some of the stuff on the inside. Who smelled the smell, as it were. Yeah, yeah. It, as it were. <laughs> at the risk of like breaking tradition around here with the, with, with our podcast, you know, kind of keep things a little bit on topic in terms of, uh, again, I keep going back to this whole, what would this look like for the wargaming world? And if somebody were to create some sort of system document, you, you mentioned basically finding some large company willing to open up a system, or would it be, I've got a system, I'm able to sell it to a larger company, but with the, the, with the the parameter that it it is an open system and other people get to develop some things from it, it if that would I, I can't see GMT doing it because <laughs> no <laughs> GMT encompasses production backlogs are just so damn long that yeah. if if you took it to them today and they agreed holy crap this is an awesome idea it's still not getting published for five years because they just got so much crap stacked up in it not crap like it's bad but there's just so much stuff stacked up in the queue already that it would take forever for it to get around to getting published but is you know it, if if you had something that enough of the smaller publishers could get behind and and what I'm thinking is almost sort of the the Blue Panther in-house guys, right? All those print-on-demand guys that Steve runs stuff for. If you manage to find some sort of system that somebody was willing to design stuff for, Hollenspiel and Catastrophe and White Dog and Schutz mm -hmm. and Historical Game Company, like you've got five, six publishers right there that would be easy to reach all at once. Is there something that, and, and again, I'm not going to sit here and try and design a game on the air or anything crazy like that. I mean, I'm, I'm not that nuts. <laughs> I'm, I'm close, but I'm not quite that nuts. Um, One of the you things know, that, that didn't happen in two 2008 but could have is that uh and that's that's when fourth edition was coming on and they were getting rid of the d20 uh mm -hmm. trademark license and all that stuff um i talked to two other um you know big d20 publishers about the idea of the three of us going in and essentially uh revising the third edition rules and we would start a company together whose only purpose was to publish those core rule books and so that company published the core rule books, made the money off that, split the profits. But then each of our individual companies could then publish compatible material with that game under our own names and logos and things. So essentially, 
you know, the, the holding company uh, published the core thing and then uh, individual members of that could then use it as a basis for their own stuff. That could be a way that, um, that you know, six or something war game companies could find a way to work together um, under a scheme like that. Yeah. And, and again, I, I've not seen very much of the role-playing industry from the inside. I'm, I'm friends with a handful of people in the role-playing industry, uh, but but not ever really worked in it in any in any true capacity. Like the the three role-playing products I ever published were completely self-published, and they're all 25 years in the rearview mirror. And there's a reason I'm not doing it anymore. Right? <laughs> I wasn't very good at it when I was doing it. So much like my brief foray into war game publishing, I wasn't very good at it when I was doing it. There's a reason I don't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. The, uh, <laughs> you know, the, my first RPG company, Company was a total failure, but I learned a lot so that my second RPG company went much better. One of the things that I think is is really different in in the role playing publishing side of things versus the war game publishing side of things is that, uh, quite frankly, the production's a lot easier. Um, you know, I was going to bring I, this I've, up too. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I, I've got shelves of role playing books, and they're essentially books, right? I can call it yeah. a book publisher. Publishing, self publishing the role playing stuff that I did in the nineties, I did at Kinkos. It was a lot easier because I was working there at the time. It's mm-hmm. a lot easier to get away with, but but it was all done you know, just at a copy shop, uh, never mind how relatively easy it can be to get some book publishing done when what you need is a single book of 180 pages or whatever it happens to be versus I need a map, I need counters, I need, you know, whatever charts and darts and other accessories you're going to put with it. I need Gary to 3D print me a bunch of counter trays that I can have as a Kickstarter stretch goal or whatever it might be. And the, the, the physical component production, I think is a lot easier with a role-playing game that you can get the barrier to entry for that new publisher on the production side is a lot lower relative. Oh yeah, particularly with print on demand now, you know, like when that started in the 90s, like you could tell a print on demand book from a mile away, but uh if the quality has really gotten way better since then. So Oh yeah. No, I, yeah, I can't uh, I can't tell anymore honestly. Yeah. Yeah, I I got the uh I, I've been a big Mastara fan forever. Mm-hmm. Um from, from that game world, you know, I'm, I'm not drinking buddies with him, but I know Bruce and and, and yeah. friends with him. And I was I was the guy that organized Mastaracon like two years ago or so. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I love those old gazetteers. Yeah, those 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 are some of my favorite products of all time. And uh, you know, that's that's where I got to know James Mishler and and a couple of other folks. And one of the guys, uh, Glenn Welch, who's done a ton of Mastara content on YouTube over the years, has also collected the fifth edition handbooks for Mastara. He's he's finishing up the DM's guide right now, but had the, the fifth edition player's guide for Mastara. And and they're freely downloadable as PDFs. You can't charge anything for them because it's you know the, mm-hmm. the way the licensing works, but he's got them pre formatted that you can go to is it lulu press or something like that yeah lulu yeah yeah that, that you can he's got everything completely formatted to them that you can just send them the pdf and say print me one and and that's what i did i paid for the the snazziest version of this you can get right the glossy mm-hmm. hardcover fully fancy bound whatever it is as good or better than most of the hardcovers i can walk into a game store and pull off the shelf and say give me one of these yeah it some really uh how well done it is so i don't know if it was one person or a group but some people they did it just a complete new edition of the west end star wars rpg from like Mm -hmm. 87 um you know with with all the rules options and 
stuff into a big book and they did the same thing so i have friends who paid and you could get it printed with different covers so you know wow. <laughs> get yourself yeah. on the cover yeah <laughs> yeah th this was you know th this was one of those ones that you know you when you're paying for the print on demand you're paying about 50 bucks that's about what you're paying for most of the hard covers these days anyway um but as even as a print on demand one it is comparable quality to anything you'd buy off the shelf in a professional sense but it you know, Steve over Blue Panther and, and the War Game folks know exactly what I'm talking about. Any role players listening to this going, Blue what? Steve over Blue Panther. I, I swear, I, I have this vision of he's his- He's the Lulu of, of War Games, basically. Yeah. It, but but I have this vision in his warehouse that he's got some giant Dr. Seuss machine, right? <laughs> he, he sort of puts a stack of cardboard in one end and hits a button and like all these gears and, you know, buzzers and whistles and stuff go off and a, a finished box game comes out the other end. I would definitely I call that a Willy Wonka machine, but go sure, please proceed. But but, it, but if you've, I mean, Steve's probably a little closer to Willy Wonka than Dr. Seuss, to be fair. Ha having met Steve on numerous occasions. Mm -hmm. For for folks that don't know that, that are listening to this, uh, Blue Panther does uh, all print-on-demand stuff for a variety of smaller war game companies. And they were the ones that I was just listing a minute ago. Holland Spiel is the one they're most well-known for. Um, Catastrophe Games, White Dog Games. Um, they've got a lot of the stuff from Schutz Games on license now. Um, where they're they're printing those things, the historical game company and Blue Panther is now publishing some stuff under their own name um, where they've got all of the the files that I mean, they'll provide all the templates for the publishers. They figure out, uh, you know, how all the production pieces are going to work, but but they don't print it until you buy it. And and you're getting die cut counters, you're getting full fold out map sheets. Mm -hmm. um, in some cases, you're getting mounted map sheets. Zermot from Catastrophe Games has the, you know, the big four inch tiles that you know, it's sort of Karka insurgency, you know, when you sort of <laughs> there that you're, you're fighting through. It, it's a great game. I'm sort of picking on Tim because I know he'll be listening to this later, but it's a, it, it's a great game, but, but Blue Panther can do a variety of those different kinds of productions in one inch boxes all the way up to three inch boxes. Um, but again, still it's, it's an order of magnitude more complicated for board game production, tabletop war game production compared to most role-playing products. The None of that is fundamentally necessary for RPGs. None of that is fundamentally necessary for RPGs. There is now, a site a lot of board game companies use called Game Crafter. Yeah. Um, and people use that a lot to make prototypes because they've got a big catalog of meeples and bits and, you know, all other sorts of stuff. And so, you know, they can print you like a copy <laughs> if, if yeah. you want but i think a lot of more than that folks, if you want to yeah a lot of war game folks especially in the professional space will know the game crafter from the aftershock game that rex brynan and pax sims published for the professional uh for the professional community that's the disaster relief humanitarian assistance uh, All right. kind of training game that they've done um in uh that, that was there for for uh, again it's you know hobbyists could pick this up and get five friends together and kind of play in the afternoon and they, they'll mechanically figure out all the rules they're not going to get maximum value out of it because it's really designed as a professional training tool uh, for for NGOs and governments and organizations that, that help with humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. That's but but the game crafter are who actually build and assemble those for them. So so you know that that's tying back into what you were saying there, Chris, about game crafter does these things. Yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a useful site. A print on demand way in which here's this open source set of war game rules here are you know and, and maybe it becomes here are some basic counter templates that you can use that are compatible with blue panther or game crafter or um i think superior pod is doing some war game publishing now i think that's who just recently did uh, the brandywine stuff that i think it was bill molyneux 
that did those mm-hmm. um that uh it's jeff valent i think the company is superior pod that uh all the emails i get for you know shipping these things to me are coming from jeff valent <laughs> um I, I think that's their company so, so i mean there's a couple of different places you get these things printed for that print on demand um here's the basic rules go build your own crap and you know have fun with it um i mean if, you know if companies want to get together and just produce a rule book that they that then mm-hmm. they could all build upon um that could be an easier route than trying to publish uh you know a big war game first here comes the 10th season of the armchair dragoons podcast mentioned in dispatches let's thank all of our patreon supporters who pledged at the top level a huge thank you to stagger wing patrick garrity mike quigley joseph Knoll, hethwell wargames robert Patrick Mullen, Kevin Bertram, Chet Bell and Chub Corey for their support of the Armchair Dragoons and helping us to bring you the best strategy gaming content on the web. You too can sign up as a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash armchair dragoons. Another potential direction in which this can go and this is the point at which gary's going to tune out the conversation but chris i know this is a world in which you live in the wargaming space yeah people have done similar things to this for miniatures rules for quite some time mm-hmm. um, you know there there are a handful of different miniatures rules um o- over the years that share a common underlying set of mechanics a common underlying um set of dna that just transport between different different genres different eras is of of wargaming um over the years and so uh that's i mean that's it's a possibility it's not necessarily the yeah well it's interesting you'd have to play with dirty miniatures wouldn't you (laughs) (laughs) i love miniatures or or do them all on tabletop simulator where you can just copy yeah you have little lego men yeah (laughs) in tabletop simulator that's actually a thing I have oh yeah, learned. I just rather have a, a beautifully made board with uh, several hundred excellently painted miniatures on it. But I you know, completely, that's just com- completely <laughs> understand the appeal. <laughs> Um, so in, you know, the early days of, uh, of miniatures gaming, like there was not even a sense of it being a commercial enterprise, you know, mm-hmm. when, when historical minis started, in sure the, there, still is. <laughs> yeah, well, there are professional companies and all that, but like in the fifties, it was, you know, man, DBA <laughs> is now a hardcover rule book. It is. Did you know that? Yeah. I didn't even know that. I'm like, I did. I have it. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. My gripe about that is he did a paid to have a hardcover book done. Didn't pay to have a new piece of cover art done. He just used the same one from the previous edition of DBA, which wasn't good to start with. And I'm like, <laughs> come on, man. Like, <laughs> spend 150 bucks at least. You know, get get someone to paint you a good Roman. But yeah. Oh well. <laughs> but. <laughs> But, you know, the, the, between, look, there was DBA and there's like three other DB somethings uh-huh. out there that, that all essentially run off of that, uh, that, that same underlying core set of mechanics that you can run with from there there's the uh it's it's uh is it a song of drums and it's a song of something and something is another yeah, song yeah. of i have no idea what you're talking about no uh, you don't but chris does yeah yeah um, <laughs> um a song of blade heroes of, was the first one yeah uh, they, I, I know a, there's a Shakos one, so yeah, drums and and uh, and Shakos is the Napoleonic one. Yeah, there you um, go. And there's others. That that's an interesting system, but again, it's you know owned by a guy. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting uh, point, though, that, that to, to draw the miniatures example here, because if we're a member back in the day, not only was it not particularly viewed as a commercial enterprise, but, you know, random guy on our game table has a spin caster in his basement and is making the miniatures, too. Mm. Uh, but kind of the expectation was that you would have your own rules, right? It was considered weird in the early 70s, maybe late 60s, that when somebody published a set of miniatures rules, because that wasn't the expectation at all. The expectation was you'd come up with your own rules or use, yeah. you know, one of the yeah. sort of lingua franca that were in circulation at the time. That that was definitely the case in the 50s and, you know, first half of the 60s anyway, where if you went to somebody else's house, you would play their rules. And if they came to your house, they'd play your rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, they didn't name them. So, like, when I was learning about the history the early history of of the miniatures gaming hobby as we know it um you know i would hear talk about tony bath's ancients rules mm-hmm. and i was like well cool i want to check those out what are they called and i couldn't find what they were called because they didn't have a name they were just tony bath's rules <laughs> when, when robert mosher was writing sort of the, the wargaming history articles for us with kind of tracking from the original Kriegspiel forward through a lot of those he talks about jack scrooby's wargaming rules right that's what they that's what they were they were you know and and it wasn't until featherstone published multiple books that you actually had to distinguish between the different rule sets because yeah. there was more than one rule set that featherstone had published um you know we, we've had david and stennis from the from the wargaming company on the podcast before with with our buddy Cyrano with with jim and uh and, you know one of the things that jim has talked about and and david has said they've intentionally tried to make the barrier to entry easier for new war gamers in the minis space is you go to historicon and you play in an event and you go man this was great where do i find the rules and like well that's the base rule book but we're using that guy's you know house rules for the supply thing and we were using this guy's house rules for the you know artillery volley fire and whatever else and so there's no place you can just walk to a booth and buy a box and leave with everything in it that you can go play and that was something that the wargaming company that, that david and stennis was specifically trying to 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 help with to the point now where they're actually making their own minis on top of the rules and the command cards and the scenario books and everything i think it's something that the flames of war and team yankee guys that the battlefront minis has cracked the code on reasonably well and uh and then warlord also with a lot of yeah. their box sets they've they've yeah. done a pretty good job of it warlord just went and made that maddening 13 millimeter scale that you guys <laughs> Well, so, you know, Warlord was, it was all X Games Workshop guys who started that yeah. company. And so they just took, you know, things they knew worked uh, at, from Games Workshop and applied it to historical minis gaming. Um, and, you know, to, to success, like they've yes. got, a, yeah. Um, I too scratched ahead at the size of their Epic minis, but, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, but I mean, to, it takes to all me- scales. So. <laughs> Yeah, to an extent, you do have a bit of. I think the war, the the minis wargaming world is probably a lot closer to the idea of kind of this open game engine, open game license kind of thing that that we're describing. Because with a core rule book of here's how the game works, your limitations at that point are what figures do you feel like painting and what terrain do you feel like building, and yeah. and you're building your own scenarios, you're building your own content on top of somebody else's rules because you kind of have to, right? I mean, that's sort 
sort of, but, but the flip side of it is if you're a minis guy, you're probably doing it because you enjoy the arts and crafts side of things anyway. But I think the minis world is already a lot further down that road than the tabletop world probably ever will be. Um, yeah. The games but, that, that have tournament scenes, you know, they, they are more buttoned up where it's like, here's 12 standard scenarios. And you know, when you yeah. go play in a tournament, it's going to be one of these and that kind of thing. But you know, definitely the uh the individual creativity that that minis gaming allows uh particularly historical because you can do you know design your own scenarios do what ifs you know all this kind of stuff um uh you know that's that's really some of the most fun parts of it so All right, let's uh let's wake Gary up and bring him back into the conversation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sorry, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was reading Twitter while you were talking about miniatures. Well, well, my my problem with miniatures is I don't have the time to or the bandwidth to deal yeah. with the miniatures, right? It's the miniatures that are the problem. I have no doubt that the thing's fun and visually appealing and all that stuff. Please I mean please leave Squad Theater was coming. designed originally as a miniatures game. Yeah, and they continue yeah. to support that even <laughs> into the ASL days when they yeah. did the deluxe. ASL. We talked about this last night on my show. Um, or, yeah, last night on my show when they did Deluxe ASL. The intention was you were going to play on these enlarged boards with micro arm. Yep. And uh, there were some people that tried that, apparently, but I never saw them. <laughs> so. it, it was a harder sell to the squad leader community because, you know, you could get one expansion and just like, here's all the British, you know, yeah. <laughs> like literally every piece of equipment I could possibly need. Uh, when you get into having to buy miniatures for everything, uh, it's, a, it's a more expensive proposition. Yeah, the, the, the best of the minis board game crossovers that I've seen was completely unintentional and and also unofficial. And when Wizards was still doing the Axis and Allies collectible minis game, mm. the the maps and minis for those actually scaled very well to Lock and Load's Tank on Tank series of games. Oh, okay. Um, you can you can play lock and loads tank on tank games pretty well with a couple of starter sets from the A and A minis where you've just got a couple of common because because the the board game itself is fairly simplistic. It's not a very complicated game. You can and, and Gary's watched me do it. You can teach and run the game in under an hour. It's a great convention game. Indeed, I have fallen asleep to you doing it on multiple occasions. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's an easy one to set up, teach, and and then play a couple of iterations of. Um, and and it works great for non war gamers also because we did it at mace this past year um when mike and i were there and that's that's a very non-wargaming convention (laughs) Mm. oh but but we yeah, still I was, little, I was a little salty when wizards did the uh the access and allies minis game because uh, that was after i was there because when we were starting the miniature stuff i tried pitching people on us doing a world war ii game and they were like oh no you know that's not what we do you know da 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 da, da. and then several years later all of a sudden oh it's a world war ii game <laughs> they were waiting for you to leave yeah. what they did well, was they didn't want to do it with you <laughs> i mean they did a collectible which is not how i would have wanted to do it because you know how the how the hell do you plan a force if you just don't even yeah. know what miniatures you're gonna get? Like, <laughs> to be fair, that's not how any war gamer wanted to do it. Yeah, yeah. We want perfect information and visibility of enemy forces and positions at all times, as you know. Yeah, you're, you're, you know, realism. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Gary knows this is a sore spot for me. <laughs> so that's why I'm prodding him relentlessly on this. And as as always, I always pick a topic that I know is gonna bug Brant that night. <laughs> I haven't even mentioned the Narnia game. <laughs> the chronic? What? 
No, there is a firm believer that the Cold War goes hot belongs in a fantasy war game because it's not something that ever happened. Right. It's a it's a science fictional scenario. Well, you know, I'm I'm not even being facetious there, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ask Gary um, Turtledove if that's a science fiction story or not. And he'll tell you, yes. (laughs) There's a thing that happened in England where um, it wasn't like one company doing it. A bunch of companies contributed to this. It was called the Very British Civil War. It was about if there was a civil war in England in the 30s. Um, Mm. And uh, lots of people jumped off from that idea to do different things with it. Yeah, we uh, that was the jumping off point. I don't know, probably about four years ago, back about season three of the podcast. That was the jumping off point for an extended uh episode with me and Ozarski going off about different kinds of alt history scenarios and you know sort of the what ifs of the world and uh and we didn't bring Gary on because we knew he was going to go off on Cold War goes hot stuff but but a very I mean, it's fine story. there's nothing wrong with your science fictional scenario <laughs> See, I'm sorry goes, I, I mentioned miniatures again let's just uh, goes on its old shelf that's all yeah the uh the, the key thing for me one of the reasons why those scenarios are are resonate so much with me is I lived in Germany for a bunch of the 70s and 80s success success we've done it to him again (laughs) once again he is forced to defend his indefensible position on this topic The, the point at which I was exploring those games and, uh, and and developing my love of them, they they were current events, right? They weren't speculative yeah. alt history. They were they were very much a real possibility at that moment. So, uh, hey, I still feel weird playing a Vietnam game because I grew up while the Vietnam War was still growing on. I was a you know I was a kid. So that imagine uh, imagine how John Prados felt in 1972 designing a war game about the Vietnam War when the war was still happening. Yeah, yeah. Probably not too different from Volko and Brian working on a distant plane while <laughs> Afghanistan was still going on. So yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's that's actually absolutely fair. Uh, although in their defense, they did cut it bef- about a year before the design work actually started. They sort of got it up through. I guess the design work started in 2011, so they they cut it at 2012 the last of the scenario and the game came mm-hmm. out in 2013 early 2014 so the the point at which the game cuts off is in the past from when the game was published so um, yeah but yeah that's you know that that was about as current as you're going to get there um and of course our, our good buddy ty bomba has the upcoming war in the ukraine game and paper wars in about three issues or so there's yep. there's an upcoming one for a uh a current events game in in ukraine and then steve with the design on contact now the redo of the uh don't tell me he's now retooling that to be a, a war in the ukraine game if you look in paper wars 102 there's a set of counters for skirmish battles in ukraine with russian and ukrainian counters in there using contact now released so okay that's that's optimistic i i'm just telling you what's i've got the magazine man i'm just telling okay. you what's i'm just yeah, yeah. i'm just just steve's steve is a half glass half glass half full kind of guy what can i say yeah i find i I don't really i don't really enjoy uh more like modern era gaming because uh it's too close i guess i kind of prefer uh wars that are safely in the past uh (laughs) <laughs> I can sympathize with that. Yeah. I'm not really into modern stuff either, but I, you know, I've got a few, even yeah. some fantasy games like 1985 Hunter and Iron Sky, for example, mm. a light fantasy game, as we call it <laughs> in my house. I'm not sure I would call it light. Oh, no. It's 14 pounds. What are you talking about? It's literally 14 pounds. <laughs> yeah. 12 pounds of counters alone. 
my uh, my friend Rick, he grew up in Bremerton uh, here in Washington State, which is you know big big Navy uh, yep. installation there. My wife's um, actually from Bremerton. Yeah. So when Battlefront put out Team Yankee, he was all about it, and I just wasn't. <laughs> the Cold War isn't nostalgia for me, <laughs> you know. Uh, so uh, and I was like, look, man, I'll play with you uh, if you collect both sides, but I'm not gonna go in on this and so yeah. he did so we've played a few games but uh that, that's as far as i've gone the most recent team yankee expansion that they just finished shipping this month was their uh was their red dawn expansion and one of the last things they dropped was the american militia was the wolverines yep. and uh and so you can you can actually collect and paint something that looks i i don't they called it red dawn i don't know that they ever officially licensed it or if they ever needed to or if they managed to clear it somehow or what but uh yeah i don't know the 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 sculpts don't look exactly like Charlie Sheen and Patrick Swayze, but they're close enough that with some decent painting, you can tell who they are. Yeah, um, but yeah, I saw that in the theater. <laughs> yeah. Chris, talk to us a little bit about some of your wargaming background. I know during the during the, the the COVID lockdowns of everything, you had your curated quarantine series that you were running on social media, where you were talking about all the different war games in your collection. Um, I, I say war games; it wasn't all war games, but no, a lot of them were. And the ones that I read all of were. Um, <laughs> t- talk to us a little bit about your war game collection and how the was curated quarantine just because you were bored, like the rest of us, or was there there a larger point to it all? Well, I mean, quarantine was a weird experience right like uh, particularly for me in that 2019 was like my best year for international travel ever you know <laughs> so <laughs> i turned 50 that year i i did a you know four or five week trip to the uk i flew up to you know the shetland islands and uh, the orkneys and walked around in uh, you know, Neolithic burial chambers and cairns and all that kind of shit. Went to Australia for a convention. I went to Italy for the Luca convention. You know, it was great. And then I went from that to, I'm going to stay home for a year. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, one day just on a lark, I was like, it's like, I don't know. Why don't I just like make a tweet about different games in my collection? Like every day, we'll see how that goes. And the first one was, you know, a single tweet about um, the D&D white box set, um, which was the first thing that I got for D&D back in 79. Uh, um, and uh, and then it just grew from there. <laughs> so uh, they, they became longer and longer. Um, and, you know, I, I did a mix of uh, role playing games, miniatures games, uh, board games, uh, board war games and, and other things in my collection even one LARP. And it was a good outlet for me. In the end, what I thought was going to be like a LARP, I ended up writing 100,000 words over the course of a year. So I yeah. ran it for 365 days. Um, I did a hashtag, created quarantine. You can go onto Twitter and find it all, I'm sure. Um, I'm pondering redoing it as a book, but it would actually take a fair amount of effort to take social media posts that were sometimes self-referential <laughs> and, you know, weren't done in any kind of order, uh, into a, a book, but, uh, but yeah. Um, so, uh, as I just mentioned, I got into D and D in 79 and I soon started to read dragon magazine. And in that era, Dragon was not just a D&D magazine. Uh, you know, all, all the original TSR guys, they came out of the 60s wargaming scene, both miniatures and board games. And so 
they covered a lot of stuff in there. And that was my introduction to the wider game industry. Um, and it was from there that, uh, you know, I learned about things like Squad Leader um, and games like Machiavelli and that kind of stuff. And so that's where I started uh, with the with the war games. Um, and uh, it's just like things are so factionalized and have been for a long time uh, where, you know, war gamers are mad at role players and mad at LARPers, you know, all this stuff. Everyone is very siloed away and all that. And at the time I was like, this is all just part of a grand tapestry of, of hobby games. And this is fucking great. <laughs> so, Let's be honest, everybody, everybody's mad at the LARPers, right? We all think yeah. <laughs> everybody thinks LARPers are weird. Hey, LARPs can be fun, but, um, but yeah, like, uh, so yeah, I mean, it just made total sense to me that that I could uh, play, you know, Dawn Patrol on on one day and uh, Space Opera from Fantasy Games Unlimited like the next day. Wow. Uh, so yeah, um, that's that's kind of how I got into everything. Um, yeah, I got my start on D anD D in eighty one when some of my wargaming friends said, "Well, hang on before we before we put these war games on the table, we've got to finish up this D anD D scenario." What the hell is D anD D? And that's you know, when they, that's when I found out about D and D, and my life's been a wreck ever since. But it's uh, a that, that that that's where I discovered it. Your your curated quarantine series I found when uh, I saw Shannon Applecline sharing a few of them, and uh, I was like, oh, oh wow. that's kind of cool, and started reading you know the rest of them at that point. Between your curated quarantine and uh, there, there's a former radio DJ out of Pittsburgh that was doing a thing going through his record collection. Um, mm. the, those two things kept me well entertained during quarantine when uh, when you were sort of you know starving for some reading material that wasn't just whatever the body count of the week was. Um, yeah, I guess I could have done that with my uh, my collection of punk rock records, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I stuck to games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gary, role-playing stuff. You, you started with Traveler or you started with Room No, Quest? I started with D&D. You did start with um, D&D? No, but I went to Traveler. I, I went by 83 or so. By by about 83, I was looking into things like Traveler um, and Champions were, were the oh, early yeah. things. And mm-hmm. and early Call of Cthulhu as well. I'm not sure that was 83. It might have been 84, 85. Um, and then I wasn't exposed to RuneQuest, which was pretty revelatory to me at the time until it, the Avalon Hill edition came out, which I believe was 87. 87. Might have been 86, something like that. Um, and of course, monumentally early. expensive at the time. It was, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was actually earlier because I remember being like in high school going to, uh, you know, this hobby shop and I would always look at RuneQuest, but, you know, I didn't have whatever it was, $40 or something for the yeah. you know, RuneQuest box. And yeah, um, it's the equivalent yeah. of like 110 bucks today, which, you know, is, yeah. is a Quest half price people will balk at, but yeah, well, right, yeah. If you're you're paying 110 bucks for that, you're getting it on a sale. Um, but you I also it's a <laughs> it's the size of a car too. So I mean, there's that. But yeah, I mean, I so I've been playing since I I, I was first introduced to hobby games via SPI magazine games actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I moved into I was fascinated by the whole idea of D and D because I knew kids that were playing it and I wasn't playing it yet. Um, so I I got dated pretty precisely to my tenth birthday in night in May fifth, nineteen eighty one. So yeah. when I All got right. the uh, Moldve box set, uh, basic set for my birthday. Um, and you know then I played 
some, some war games, but I played a lot of RPGs. And then in the 90s, I played a lot more war games and a lot less RPG or a lot more RPGs and a lot less war games. Um, and that continued into the early 2000s when I pretty much dropped out of war gaming because, like we mentioned before, they had disappeared from the convention scene. So I'm like, hey, man, this whole scene's dead. Um, not realizing that I just wasn't in the loop. Um, so I stuck with war gaming, pretty much dropped out of war games, sold most, but thankfully not all of my war games. Mm. Um, and now have rebuilt that collection, <laughs> including having bought. <laughs> a bunch of the stuff that i sold off before which i have of course done many times in rpgs as well yeah so yeah in the, the 90s last... um i i started to fill in my collection of avalon hill stuff in particular because i just didn't have a lot of money <laughs> you know uh yeah. when i was a teenager or well most mm -hmm. of my life really but i <laughs> <laughs> i had enough to buy some old avalon hill games that was before prices on everything um you know went buck wild so uh you know now when i look at something like maybe i should pick, pick up a copy of that and i'll look and it's like 150 dollars like or not <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> check out the prices on campaign for north africa right now holy yeah God. i actually yeah. use that as an, an example i i was when i went to luca for that game fair i was asked to do a um a, like a game design workshop um and uh uh, because it was an audience of Italians, I told them about the, the rule that Italian units needed extra water to boil their pasta in because I knew uh, it'd be a good laugh line. And <laughs> they, they certainly <laughs> found it funny. <laughs> I, One of my uh... very first Gen Cons, I, I won in the auction this whole set of Lords of Creation, which was mm, a wow. role-playing game that Avalon <laughs> Hill did. And I was like, what a score, you know, and I brought it home and then I read it and I was like not much of a score and then it was a few years later that I brought it back to the Gen Con auction. <laughs> it's like, yeah. let me pass it on to some other soul. It, yeah. it, it's an interesting piece. Ta ta signed by Tom Oldway, native of Akron, Ohio, by the which is where I'm at. Yeah. So. All right. Yeah. The uh, for me, a lot of the role playing stuff where where the wargaming stuff fell off. You know, Gary, for you, you you experienced that at conventions. For me, I experienced that in the early '90s when everybody was first getting online. The it was very easy to find folks willing to talk role playing stuff online. There weren't a lot of folks. A lot of the war gamers were either late to the party or stayed in very small silos and were not open to a ton of conversation with other folks. That's where I'd met Bruce Hurd and James Mishler was interacting with all the Mastara folks back when TSR's official presence was on AOL. Oh, and there's, yeah, yeah. There's still a handful of those folks that all keep in touch these days. That That's where Thorfinn and Tate first met a lot of those folks when he started doing the maps for Mastara. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess it's secret knowledge now, but there used to be in the 90s um, a backroom area for the game industry because an early AOL employee whose uh, email address was Mike at AOL. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's how early he was in there. Um, really early. He, uh, he liked gaming and he set up this whole... Uh, you know, all these boards for the public, but also this back room where, where publishers could go talk. Um, yep. And that whole thing was really robust for a bunch of years. Um, but then things developed and, you know, AOL <laughs> kind of yeah. faded away. Had uh, issues. Yeah. They sunk all their money into promotional CDs. So. <laughs> yes. Or, or as the rest of the future, we'll still find them. Yeah. Um, but 
I mean, that's it was very easy to find folks doing RPG stuff online. It was a lot harder to find folks doing war game stuff online. And so mm -hmm. it, it was very easy to to get more engaged and involved in the role playing world than it was the war gaming world. And it wasn't until early 2000s that I I had come back to the war gaming world. Um, the uh, largely because I was doing a little more of it professionally on the military side. So that's. That's how I kind of found my way back over there. So, mm. Chris, this has been great having you. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us for this, especially because you have the industry insight that Gary and I could only guess at around some of the partly the legal piece, partly the sort of the practical marketing and development piece for for this topic. Um it, and we did actually originally have a topic audience. I mean, we we, we did <laughs> try to drag us back to it a couple of times. But but again, you know, the, the OGL stuff was in the hobby game news a lot over the last month, month and a half. Um, I, I really think Watsy's run. They're having to borrow other people's feet to shoot at this point because they're yeah. out of their own. And, uh, and, and, you know, sort of would something like this ever happen in the wargaming world and couldn't really particularly envision it. But it's because there isn't an OGL comparison in the wargaming world that that's anything remotely comparable and so that that got to the follow-on conversation of well why not or what if and uh and and so you know you've got the practical experience on the business side with the ogl thing but it's not like wargaming is a foreign language to you so that's that's no. why we have you to come in for this so. it is not so i, I agree 4.2.3 it's all there <laughs> <laughs> yes the the spi case system of rules right there yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah well thanks for having me on I, it's nice to just uh shoot the shit with a couple old war gamers and yeah. It's a good time. Less old in but, my case, of course. Okay. Than, than Brand. You, you realize <laughs> who's who's literally like the same age as me. You, you've got about a year and a half on me, dude. Do I? I just look. Yes. I'm really clean. Living is what it is. <laughs> I mean, you look good. Yeah. So. Thank you. <laughs> That's what my mom says too. It's it's been a running gag for me for many years. I just turned fifty this year, and I'm still the kid in most of the wargaming rooms that I'm in. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is kind of scary, really, because I've been the kid in most of those rooms for 15 years. I was delighted to find that I was, I was at, at age 50, 50, 50 last year at Winterfest. I was the second youngest person in the room mm. so, <laughs> out of about 30 people. So. Yeah, there's a historical miniatures convention I go to here in Washington called Enfilade in Olympia. Um, yeah. And uh, when I first started going, um, you know, I was one of the younger <laughs> people there. Um, I will say, you know, I mean, there's definitely a generation uh, beyond me and my friends, but there have actually been some young people coming in mm -hmm. as well. So that's been nice to see. Well, we, we have started to see some younger folks show up at our wargaming program at Origins. Because again, it, w the, the Armchair Dragoons run the the most visible of the wargaming programs at origins there's other folks doing some individual games here and there but as far as kind of a unified presence for waming there that's us and and that's that's been us for almost a decade um but i'm but gonna be in origins this year we, so. we've sort of awesome yeah. and see us we're gonna be there um yeah, we can come by and gary's see you, splitting you, up you know. the entire compass games third world war all the maps together on one big table that's true. and they're gonna play well we might leave yeah. the middle east off we'll see but it's going to be big. Yeah. Yeah. Um, nice. We did, so, yeah, we, we did Europa.
Europa last year. Oh, all of it? We did second front. We did a two-map second front game with, where it's just like the northern half of the, sec, the the west front. And we got through 1944. So we did about half of 1944 in three days. And a shocking number of people came. We kind of did it as a rolling open event so people could just come by, play a yeah. turn or two, and then leave. Uh, and a shocking number of people came by and participated. Uh, meaning yes. like, you know, 12. But I mean, I think felt like that's a lot <laughs> considering it's a 20, 20-year-old game that you you can't get for less than don't you can't even smell the inside of the box for less than three hundred dollars nowadays. So at, at least one of those players, I'm not sure, was born when the game was released. Oh, I, I yeah. can guarantee that's the case. Uh, but like other people came by. The, the funniest people were like the actual old Europa guys who came. We're like, oh yeah, you want to sit on a plane? And like, no, no, no <laughs> chance. I've had my fill of this. Thank you very much. Yeah, <laughs> they were the ones that knew better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, it's it it. It is nice that we are seeing younger folks show up to play in the games. What's also nice is we're starting to get younger folks show up as designers of games as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that <laughs> youngster David Thompson, for example. Yeah, he's, he's, he's at least five years behind us. Come on. Oh, at least, oh. yeah. I mean, he can't be older than, what, 20, 22, something like that? <laughs> he doesn't look like, like that. That's for sure. Uh, but, but, yeah, it's, it, it is nice that we've got a younger generation of Wargamers finally discovering Wargaming, even if it's not all Europa. Um, at, at least it's, <laughs> it's still some hexes and counters and CRTs, and that's, that's <laughs> nice. So, yeah, it, it is fun to have them there. Well, um, it's cool that you're going to be at Origins. We're going to, you know, make it a point to say hi in there somewhere. Uh, Gary will be the guy with bags under his eyes from 24 hours worth of Third World War. It's, uh, we're not, you know, it's, we're, it's not that aggressive, but it, it's aggressive. So. We're going to spread it over a couple of days for you. Don't worry. I, oh, I just you. submitted all the events today. So. It's a lot of I, I haven't been to Origins in a while because they kept holding it over my birthday. And I was like, look, I just don't want to spend my birthday at a game convention. So they finally moved it later in June. So it's like, okay. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> audience thank you for sticking with us through all of this uh gary thank you for being here we're gonna bring you back a couple more times this season as well happy to be here uh, as always yeah so we're you know coming up later this season um we're gonna we're gonna circle back around to some more talk about solo war gaming so gary will not be here for that one don't worry about nope, it gary. i'm good i'm I'm cool thanks no, no problem with it but not um, my forte yeah we've uh we've got one where, where we are bringing you back to talk about different kinds of rule systems rules presentations ways in which you can teach people the games through programmed rules versus indexed and you know reference kind of copies and whatever i hope uh, but, you got jerry white to carry the weight on that one um a- actually i think rocky's gonna gonna carry the weight on that one for us so all right uh, awesome the great thing about having you and rocky is i can throw out a question and just like turn my mic off for like an hour it's great you know just let the two of y'all take over <laughs> and, and that's you know it's me and jim can pretty much do that too brant to um it, yeah and and i think we're gonna have the two of y'all back to to cover some stuff as well not um, only uh do i expect that i demand it yes the, well the people demand that uh that grog of the year uh meet up yes uh do i have to invite fred for that as well uh you um, can fred's a delight to have on yeah well so we, we, we are going to talk some conventions and events we are going we do have uh actually cole worley's going to join us this season as well and That's we're going to talk about him diving back into napoleonics um so we're going we're to bring jim on because we're talking napoleonics we have to have jim here <laughs> clearly <laughs> absolutely uh we are going to talk a little bit of digital wargaming this time as well because we're going to talk some about different kinds of ai and some of the development of ai 
uh, for the digital wargaming world. Um, and then uh, one of the other one, one of the things that's gotten a little popular lately are the uh, the book war games, right? Sort of the choose your own adventure war games. Hmm. Um, uh, Worthington has a couple of these out, and there's a few others floating around out there. But even like John Antal back in the '90s was publishing essentially these choose your own adventure kinds of professional war games, um, you know, in, in book format. So we're going to talk some about those. So that's that's just a smattering of some of the things that we're going to cover over the next 13, 14 weeks this season as we lead up to the summer and then take our usual summer break because we're all off at conventions. Um, in the meantime, audience, we'll catch you next week. Gary, I'll actually see you in person up at Buckeye Game Fest. Um, in a month or two, a couple of yeah, April. Yeah, and hope my car doesn't break down on the way home this time. That yeah, well, nice. my car won't break down on the way. So. <laughs> well, your car won't leave the driveway with the tree sitting on it my so. car was just hauled off on the wrecker yesterday so yeah oh so. a tree <laughs> fell on it and totaled it yeah it, it lost its saving throw versus wood versus wood mm. save versus tree yeah. um it's just a very large staff right it lost the saving throw versus wands yeah. and staves um so and then chris i guess we'll get a chance to finally see you face to face at origins this year so that's yeah so yeah um and then audience if any of you are going to be at either buckeye game fest or origins stop by and say hi uh we'll be the loud obnoxious guys in the corner making fun of the labat players um because that's sort of what we do um and and occasionally play a game of our own and uh and, and we'll see you guys then uh in the meantime, thank you guests for being here. Thank you audience for being here. And we'll catch you all next time on another episode of Mention and Dispatches. <laughs>